Good afternoon, everyone. If you could come and take your seats, we'd like to open the afternoon session for today. I'm Connie Benson. I'm from University of California, San Diego, and I'm going to be chairing the sessions for this afternoon. Our first speaker of the afternoon is Dr. Glenn Treisman, who is professor and director of the AIDS Psychiatry Service at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he's going to be talking to us this afternoon about chronic pain and the drug-seeking patient, a behaviorist's approach. Connie, thank you so much. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, please don't fall asleep because it demoralizes me, but uh, I'll try to keep you awake. This is such a boring, dull topic, uh, drug-seeking patients. I know you, you, it's very academic for you because you've probably never seen any, but <clears throat> in Baltimore we do have some of these patients that are addicted to narcotics and come wanting more narcotics. And I'm going to tell you a couple things about this, but I want to start out by saying that, that what I'm going to talk to you about today is not the usual way to think about this problem. And it's the way people used to think about the problem, but it's gotten lost in the politics of the moment. The politics of the moment are good patient satisfaction scores and making everybody comfortable. It turns out that sometimes when you, when you do that, you make them uncomfortable when you're trying to make them comfortable, and you make them worse instead of making them better. So I'll try to give you some ideas about that. Um, I have no relevant disclosures. I have some irrelevant disclosures that I'm happy to disclose later. Um, I'm hoping to talk to you about what chronic pain is uh, and think about behavioral approaches to chronic pain and a coherent approach for treatment of these patients. Um, so this is our case. Uh, this is a real case. 33-year-old 33 33 white man arrives in the clinic, having recently moved to the area. He is on uh, um, a uh, very nice regimen of uh, triple therapy, some Bactrim, some oxycodone, 80 milligrams, two tabs TID, some oxycodone IR 10Q6 uh, for breakthrough pain, Ritalin 20 TID because he gets sleepy on the oxycodone, and clonopin, 2 milligrams TID, because he gets jittery and anxious on the amphetamine. Uh, this is the truth. This is what the guy said to me. And uh, then he can't sleep at night because he sleeps all day. So he has Ambien. Um, he was attending a clinic in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Even in Bridgeport, Connecticut, it is, the it is the place that makes Baltimore look like a vacation spot. It's the... Is the uh, is the third world, this is the fourth world that he came from. He said he will run out of medications tomorrow. So, you should, one, retrain in dermatology. Advise him you cannot provide any medications until you get records for him. Offer him a one-month supply of his medications and advise him to get records. Discuss treatment goals in a transition plan. Order labs. Give him one-day supply of his meds and have him return tomorrow. Give him his HIV medications and refer him to the pain clinic for management of his pain and opiates. Please vote. If SAG were here, he'd be playing music right now. Oh, there's music. Okay. And the answer is, uh, most of you thought we should uh, discuss treatment goals in a transition plan, order labs, give him one day supply of his medications and have him return tomorrow. And that's what I would do. Um, none of these are wrong, really. Um, even retraining in dermatology has its assets. Um, um, you're not going to get this guy into the pain clinic until uh, five years from now. 
but they, they will take him and they will give him all these narcotics and opiates for you. The problem is he's still your patient. At some point after the pain clinic has given him sufficient narcotics and benzodiazepines, they will suddenly say, we can't help this guy anymore and give him back to you. Often on double the amount that they started with. Um, any of you manage these patients know this is true. Um, now there are pain clinics around the country that are very, very good with these patients. And if you have one, that's fantastic. I help run a chronic pain service at Johns Hopkins that takes care of these kinds of patients, and we do very well with them. Mostly we get them off narcotics. Um, but it's totally reasonable to do any of these things. But the one I would do is the one that most of you selected. And so you're not going to really learn anything, so go get more cookies. Um, pain is made up of two parts. There's the somatosensory part that you think about when it's about pain. And then there's the distress part. And the distress part is the part that low-dose opiates relieve. They don't really relieve the sensory part. They really relieve the distress. Having had one kidney stone in my life, um, as you get older, you get these complex comorbidities. And one of them is you get enlarged prostate, so you don't drink as much water because you don't want to have to pee. And so then you get a kidney stone. So <laughs> thank you. It's really great. Turns out they really do hurt as much as they say. Um, and they gave me a slug of Dilaudid. I'm extremely sensitive to narcotics, never being hating to take narcotics. And uh, I got to tell you, the pain didn't bother me. It was still there, but I didn't care. I was making jokes and having a blast there in the emergency room for a couple hours while I waited for my stone to appear in the little cup. Um, the other thing about pain is there are really two kinds of pain. There's acute pain, which all of you are very familiar with, and then there's something called chronic pain. And, and originally, chronic pain was described as <clears throat> the pain that lasts longer than six weeks or eight weeks, depending on which definition you use. But that's not really what chronic pain is. Chronic pain is the pain that happens after the tissue has healed as much as it's going to heal. Pain is the continuing pain despite stabilization of the condition. So low back pain, the back's as injured as it's going to be. There's not any tissue damage. Now, this is in contrast to cancer pain or chronic uh, rheumatoid arthritis pain, in which you really have chronic acute pain or inflammation and injury going on. But chronic pain with neuropathy, the tissue's not being damaged anymore. The nerves are sending a false signal. Most of the patients you see for chronic pain are in this second category in which the pain is an adaptation of the nervous system to some injury. And the signal is still going. If you record from the thalamus of these patients, no matter whether you believe them or not, the vast majority of them are actually having spiking in their thalamus. The thing is, you can get spiking in your thalamus for a variety of reasons. You experience the pain even though the tissue is no longer being injured. Sometimes that's a result of signals from the periphery. We sort of think of the pain system as a telegraph, right? Something injures your toe and it goes to your brain. But actually, it's integrated at every level. If you burn yourself on a stove, for a second, you feel only the touch. And then you feel the pain. It's partly because the pain is transmitted by slow fibers, partly because the touch information coming in actually inhibits the pain center for a second. And so you get a second delay in your pain, and then you feel the pain. And those signals are, are changed at the receptor set at the spine, at the top of the spine, at the thalamus, and at the cortex. And they're constantly being changed. So if you're walking through a field of grass, and a little piece of grass pokes you, and at the same moment you hear a bee, you'll feel this incredibly acute pain, little like sting pain. You'll look down, no bee, 
it stops. If there's a B, it hurts. Your sympathetic nervous system changes that ra your pain sensitivity that rapidly. It's in almost instantaneous. So upregulation, downregulation of pain is going on all the time. And chronic pain is an adaptation of the nervous system rather than a injury. I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about behavior. Behavior is a purposeful or goal-directed action. It's something you do. And it's important in understanding pain because there's this system in your brain. Um, this is the law of effect from Thorndike in 1913. You have an opportunity to do a behavior, like this tie. You put on the tie, and then somebody says, great tie, and you wear it more. And someone says, who dressed you this morning, Ray Charles, and you wear it less. And um, that's learning 101. This is how we all operate. We all learn this way. And uh, the guy who initially described this was Thorndike, but he comes out of the school of Ivan Pavlov, and Pavlov was an investigator who wanted to measure something. And he was a psychologist, but he wanted to be able to measure grams or cc's or something that you can actually measure. And so he measured saliva. This dog is exposed to food. When he sees the food, he salivates, and you get 13 cc's of saliva. And then you hit a tuning fork, and you get no cc's of saliva. And then you give the food to the tuning fork, and you get 13 cc's of saliva. And then you give the tuning fork alone after several rounds of this, and you get 11 cc's of saliva. This is called classical conditioning or Pavlovian conditioning. We do this to patients all the time. If you have cancer and you go to the cancer center and they keep giving you that poison that they give you for cancer, eventually you drive up in front of the cancer center and you throw up in the car. You don't have to go inside. When you go inside, if they hook you up to an IV and they say, we're just hydrating you today, you're not getting any chemotherapy. It doesn't matter that you know that. You still throw up. It's a conditioned response. You can't change it by cognition. Your body does it without any input from the cognition centers of your brain. So um, classic experiment, if you take a guinea pig, guinea pigs get allergic really easily, and you sensitize them from bovine serum albumin so that they will anaphylax when they get it, in a particular environment, then you put them in that environment, give them a shot of salt water, they'll anaphylax and die. Conditioned death. They actually die. Conditioning can kill you. It's not bovine serum albumin, it's just salt water. But the anaphylactic response is now conditioned. I can condition you to raise your blood sugar, lower your blood sugar, raise your, your uh, blood pressure, lower your blood pressure. All, nearly everything your body can do can be conditioned. The reason that's important is we're doing it to patients, and they're doing it to us. Now, after Pavlov, um, so this is a, a classical conditioning uh, experiment. Um, this is called the rat cage preference manipulation. Rats prefer dark cages, so you put a rat in here, he'll spend 90% of his time on the dark side, 10% of his time on the light side. And then if you feed him over here, he'll go over here for food, but he'll still spend most of his time over here. And then you put the cage, when the rat goes over here, you put a little blocker here so he can't go over here and give him a shot of heroin over on this side of the cage. If you do that three times, you'll reverse the preference. The rat will spend 90% of his time over here and 10% of his time over here. You've changed where he prefers to be. You've conditioned him profoundly enough that the basic biological programming of a rat, which is to be in the dark, is changed. And it's important to understand how powerful this is. That's classical conditioning. And then along comes this guy a few years later, B.F. Skinner, and he talks about operant conditioning. Can you show this? So here's this pigeon in this cage. Right? I don't know if you can see the. You see it says peck, and now it says turn. This one gives every indication. That's Skinner. 
because he's been taught to distinguish between two words uh, to behave appropriately. Watch. Uh huh. He's learned his different response to each sign by being rewarded. Now, Skinner says that's how you learn everything. And he says you don't have a mind. Your mind is an epiphenomenon of conditioning. It doesn't really exist, except for you to use it to explain conditioning. Having a conversation with one of these guys, there's one of his students, this guy named Joe Brady, and we would argue for a half an hour whether we were really arguing or not. It's a very strange experience to talk to these guys. Because they are behaviors, and they are convinced that whatever's going on in your mind, you're just explaining to yourself why you did what you were conditioned to do, and that you're not really doing it. You just think you're doing it. You just think you're thinking, but you're not thinking. So you can give the pigeon corn and positively reinforce him. You can give him an electric shock when he pecks that key and stop him from pecking it. You can stop giving him corn when he pecks the key, and he'll stop pecking it after a while. And you can give him an electric shock until he pecks the key, and then when he pecks the key, stop the electric shocks. So that's negative reinforcement, which is the most confusing one, but it is one that we use a lot. Patients come in uncomfortable. And if they do what we want, whine, beg, plead, and behave badly, we relieve their pain. So we are conditioning them to whine, beg, and behave badly. And so um, negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement are the two that you're going to use the most clinically. Um, can you show Skinner's pigeon? So this is Skinner with a pigeon. I, I tell you, this takes forever to do. He does it in a second. Random. So there's a feeder Sometimes here. It turns its head to the left. When it does, we Whenever he turns to the left, he gives it food. Giving the pigeon access to a dish of grain. Right? Now watch, he's going to give you a turn around and circle. To turn further. Oh, it didn't show it. Anyway, uh, the, the version of the clip that's supposed to show it. The pigeon actually goes all the way around in a circle in about, in about three shots. It took me hours to shape pigeons, to peck a key. It takes a long time. The thing I learned is the easy way to do it is to tape a little piece of corn to the key. Then the pigeon knows what you want him to do and pecks the key and gets rewarded and takes 15 minutes to shape a pigeon instead of four hours. One of the nice things about that we have going for us is we can tell our patients what we want them to do and we're going to reward them for so you don't have to have them guess which thing you want. The kind of conditioning that goes on with doctors and patients behind the scenes or un unknowing, unbeknownst to both of them, that's accidental conditioning. But the kind where you direct patients, that conditioning is much more effective and easier. So you can condition complicated behaviors in little steps. Um, you can take a, a rat. This was done in my lab. I don't have the video of this because I wish I did. It's gone. But what my friend did was he taught a rat that when the light came on, he pressed the bar, he would get food. And then when the light came on, he pressed the bar, he'd get benzodiazepines. He was using Valium. And then when the light came on, if he pressed the bar, the cage door would open. If he went out of the cage, he got Valium. And then when the light came on, if he pressed the bar, the door opened, he went out of the cage. He had to jump up on a little hot plate and get Valium. And then each couple days, he would turn the hot plate temperature up a little bit. And then at the very end, the video is the light comes on, the rat opens the cage door by pressing the bar, jumps up on the hot plate, little burn comes off of his feet, you see little smoke come off his feet, and then he jumps down and gets his Valium shot. We do this to patients. We condition them to do self-destructive things in little steps, not meaning to do it. We don't mean to do it, but it happens all the time. We condition behaviors by rewarding them. Now, if you get sick, what do you want to do? You want to get well. Because 
socially, occupationally, romantically, sexually, financially, and self-image-wise. Being well is where you are. You don't want to be a sick person. It turns out that um, women are more interested in men sexually if they're functional. If they're dysfunctional, they will take care of them. They'll give them a lot of attention, but not usually sexual attention. Sexual attention goes to those who are very functional. And we all kind of discover this as we go along. We look for things that reinforce us, and we blunder through and develop this set of reinforcers of healing. If your foot hurts, you still walk on it because you want to do these things. You can see your friends, you can get your paycheck, and so you can go to the meeting in L.A. And these are powerful reinforcers of getting well. However, there are other things that aren't reinforcers of staying sick. So Izzy Pulowski, this very famous psychologist from Australia, described abnormal illness behavior. Behaviors associated with illness that patients have been conditioned to continue despite the fact that they shouldn't be doing them anymore. Abnormal illness behaviors are incredibly common in patients with chronic illness because we condition them to them. Um, so positive reinforcers of abnormal illness behavior are disability payments. You pay someone to be sick every month. Attention from spouses, families, doctors, and lawyers, and lawyers, and lawyers, and lawyers. One of my guys has injured his back at work and is in a wheelchair and won't get out of the wheelchair. He says, as soon as my suit is settled, Dr. Treason, get out of this wheelchair and go back to work. But I have to wait till I get my suitcase money. I said, but you're... Being in the wheelchair and not walking is making your pain worse, you're on narcotics, your life's falling apart, your friends are not spending any time with you, you're isolated, quit it. He said, I can't, my lawyer says I can't get out of this chair. <laughs> how, can I, how can I work against that? Um, patients are able to express prohibited feelings. There's the possibility of lump sum payments, that is, in Baltimore people say suitcase money when they have a lawsuit going. And then negative reinforcers. You're suddenly relieved from stress, expectations, and criticisms. You, you don't like your job? You don't have to go. And uh, relief from pain and discomfort in the form of narcotics. So these are reinforcers of abnormal illness behavior. And for every abnormal illness behavior, Dave Edwin, another psychologist, says there's an abnormal doctoring behavior. He's a student of Pulowski's. And he says doctors are conditioned to look at specific symptoms rather than the whole case reward unhealthy behaviors with narcotics and benzodiazepines, allowing patients to run their treatment, and breaking up care into little separate domains without communication, all of which are not natural behaviors for doctors. This is not what you naturally do. This is what you're being conditioned to do. And all these behaviors are bad. They're bad for doctors to do, but we're being conditioned by economics and circumstances to do them. And here are the reinforcers. Emphasis on efficiency and short business, on problem focus, on pain as a vital sign, the stupidest thing we ever did. Pain is not a vital sign. Ask anybody from 1950 to 1970. Pain is a complaint, a symptom. A vital sign is breathing. If you are not in pain now, you are alive. You are breathing, you have a blood pressure, you have a pulse, and you have a respiratory rate. The vital signs. Signs that you're vital. Pain is not a sign that you're vital. Pain is a sign that you want something, usually narcotics. But we have called pain a vital sign out of politics, not out of medical research. It wasn't some huge breakthrough. Hey, pain is the fifth vital sign. We, we resurrected Virchow and he showed it. No. Pain is a vital sign as a, as a political convenience. And because of that, patients circle attend. 
You know why they circle a 10? They circle a 10, they get narcotics. On the inpatient pain service at Hopkins, which I attend on, I have never admitted a patient who circled anything below a 9, ever. Yet the person is sitting there watching TV, talking to their family, or, you know, narcotic, narcotic right out. I say, you know, I know what a 10 looks like. I've been to labor and delivery. You're about a 3. Oh, doctor, my pain's really severe. Can I have some more of those eggs? And <laughs> algorithmic medicine, are you inside the guidelines or outside the guidelines? You're outside the guidelines. Get in the guidelines or we'll kill you. Um, patient satisfaction, the second stupidest thing we ever did. And improved compliance and patient retention. These condition you to behave abnormally. Abnormal doctoring behaviors. And the patients condition you as well. Patients say, oh, Dr. Treesman, that's the greatest medicine you ever got. I, you know, I know it's only July, but I got you a Christmas present. Can I come over to your house and clean your windows? It's so, that medicine's so good. Can I have more of that? And they're conditioning you. You're a great doctor. You really understand me. At Xanax, whew. This is, watch what I can make Pavlov do. As soon as I drool, he'll smile and write in his little book. Now, who's conditioning who? There's a psychiatrist a number of years ago named John Mack who did alien abduction psychotherapy in Boston. And his contention was that aliens had crossed intergalactic space to come to Boston and abduct people from trailer parks near Boston and look into their rectums. Which I don't think is normal to think that. But um, if aliens came here, wouldn't they be interested in the dominant species on our planet, cats and dogs, who have trained large primates to bathe them, clean them, pick up their stool on the streets in little bags, provide them with housing, build houses for them, breed them, comb them, brush them, and buy furniture for them to sit on and chew on, all without speaking the language of those primates. Just by conditioning. It's my dog's rectum that we have to worry about. But uh, this is Turk's study in, in 1997, and he showed that the thing that gets you to write a narcotic prescription isn't whether you think the pain is real, whether you think pain is interfering with functioning, whether you think the pain is physiological. It's whether the patient has nonverbal pain behaviors. Limps, little noises, little facial expressions and grimaces. That's what gets you to whip out your prescription pad. And you don't know it. They're conditioning you to write narcotics, and you're conditioning them to limp, grimace. The limp stops, you stop the narcotics. They limp again, they get the narcotics. Pretty soon they limp. It's not that complicated. Anybody get any narcotics? So how important are opiates in the genesis of chronic pain disorders? It's not entirely clear from the research, but they are important. They're extremely powerful reinforcers. There's positive reinforcement for use, negative reinforcement when you stop them. That is, when you stop them, the patient's uncomfortable. When they get more, they're, re they're negatively reinforced. They set up an unreasonable standard for pain control. They allow ongoing injuries during the peaks of pain control. That is, when the patient's on their narcotics at their peak, they'll do stuff that hurts them. And then when they're not on narcotics, they'll be absolutely still and get, dis and get disuse injury. And the intoxication allows for psychological comfort with worsening disability and iatrogenic addiction. So um, why do patients continue to want narcotics? Because they're conditioned to. 
they relieve the distress from life, and they're being told that the goal of the doctor-patient interaction is for them to be happy. That's what they're being told by Press Ganey. They fill out a little sim. By the way, those patient satisfaction forms condition the patients to see the world in a particular way. They think that the interaction with you is whether or not they're satisfied. I've had many patients tell me that they're not going to be able to give me a very good patient satisfaction score because I won't give them narcotics. And I say, join the club. <laughs> uh, and why do, how do we define addiction? And so you can see how conditioning will atrogenically move patients into the world of addiction. What is an addiction? Well, um, I think addiction is a continuing, ongoing, repetitive behavior that occurs despite mounting consequences and disrupts function all realms. How many of you are addicted to coffee? Raise your hands. How many of you would have sex with someone who hasn't bathed for three weeks for coffee? Welcome to crack. Okay? You're not addicted to coffee. You're dependent on coffee. It doesn't disrupt your functioning. It improves your functioning. It's not addicted. It, you're dependent on it up to a point, and at some point, it becomes disruptive. So I have seen a couple of caffeine addicts, true addict, true, truly people truly addicted to coffee. One was a cardiologist at Hopkins, drink five or six pots of coffee in the morning, and he would be tremulous and jittery and absolutely weird. And his boss told him he had to come and see me. And uh, he said, I love the clarity of thought you get when you've had four or five pots of coffee. I said, well, whatever is clear to you when you're like that isn't clear to the rest of us. <laughs> and you're going to have to go off the coffee. I'm terribly sorry. And he was very resistant to the idea of going off coffee, just like people are resistant to the idea of going off alcohol or narcotics or anything else that they're addicted to. It was disordering him to the point where he was going to lose his job at Hopkins. But he didn't want to give it up. Most of you don't get that far with coffee because it's not a powerful enough reinforcer to disorder you. Same with nicotine. Nicotine will get you sick, but it doesn't disorder your behavior on a day-to-day -day basis. Whereas addictive drugs like morphine and cocaine and amphetamine, they benzodiazepines, alcohol, they disrupt your functioning at some point if you use them enough. In your brain, there's a reward pathway called the ascending mesolimbic reward pathway. So you remember my environment exposure, behavior, environment Some behaviors are hooked right into that pathway so that when you do them, you get a little, yeah, or a little, ah, right? Certain alcohol, certain food, certain sex, certain sleep. And so um, when, you, uh, when the baby cries, that's a behavior, something delicious pops into his mouth and releases dopamine. And he gets a little mmm. And then he's satisfied. And then he gets hungry and he cries. And he gets more milk. And he's satisfied. He gets hungry and more. And this is a positive feedback loop. Positive feedback loops are very dangerous. And their purpose in biology is to amplify behaviors. It's to increase rates of behavior. And uh, this is all well and good, but what is that doing in your brain? Because if you think about this cycle, it could make you chubby. I know this. And, uh, right, Donna? could make us chubby. And uh, what is that doing in your brain, that dangerous chubbiness cycle? Why did anybody ever been food poisoned? Raise your hand if you were food poisoned ever. When did you think you'd eat again? Never. Did you hear someone say it? Someone always says never. The person who said never first is the person who had the worst food poisoning. And they, when they said never, they meant it. Three hours into throwing up, they said, I am never eating again. And if you'd been there, you'd say, come on, you've got to eat again, you'll die. 
and I'll have TPN. I am never eating food again. I don't have to be, I'll be fed through a feeding tube. I am not eating food ever again. But then, after two or three days, you say, well, maybe some plain toast. Mmm, <laughs> toast. Maybe some plain pasta. Mmm, pasta. And pretty soon, you're eating normally again, because 100,000 years ago, when there were no Zagat's guides, and no little book of which mushrooms to eat, and no refrigerators, we got food poisoned a lot, because you had to eat what you could get. And if you never ate again, you couldn't join us here today, because you were genetically selected against. And being chubby isn't as bad as starving to death when you ate something bad, genetically speaking. And so uh, this cycle is there to amplify behaviors necessary for survival. Probably none of you have had a, your house on fire while you were sleeping, but I can assure you don't ever want to sleep again and you take a nap the first time after a couple of days of not sleeping in the sunlight, nap, and pretty soon you're sleeping. And probably none of you have been married to my ex-wife. But I want to assure you it can go really wrong. And you can say, never again with the most absolute conviction of man, even more conviction than he, she said never eating again. And you can be absolutely serious about it. But after a couple years, Maybe some plain toast. Mmm, toast. And now I'm very happy because I'm remarried and my wife is perfect and she's the best person in the whole world and I have two kids. And, but I'm telling you, I came very close. If it weren't for that cycle, no kids, I'd be a genetic dead end. Now, um, whether you do behaviors, how they reinforce you, how they satisfy you, and how much drive they have is determined in part by kinds of experience you have in life, whether you have major depression, the disease, and what kind of person you are, and as well by genes and social connection, religion and occupation. So these things are open to the environment at every one of these places. Some people are particularly genetically susceptible to the rewarding elements of, of alcohol, and when they drink, they have a huge dopamine release. Other people genetically much less. When people are depressed, they don't get any rewards from work, hobbies, or exercise. They don't get any rewards from sleeping, eating, or sex, but they still get rewards from cocaine and heroin. And so the susceptibility of this cycle to getting out of control from certain drugs is under many different influences. But the cycle's the same. So alcoholics who become an alcoholic from their first drink forward or after 20 years of gradually increasing their alcohol use look the same. The cycle looks out of control. And people who have the genes for alcohol and never get out of control, you can't tell them from anybody else. They're perfectly normal. This is Joe Brady's baboon. Joe Brady, the behavioral guy, told Back when I was working in the lab, before most of you were born, um, cocaine was, was described as a non-addictive drug. It wasn't addictive because there was no withdrawal. We said, no withdrawal. It's the designer drug. It's a perfect drug. You get high from it, but you don't get any withdrawal from it. I don't know if any of you remember, but Time Magazine had a, a little uh, uh, cocktail glass, a little martini glass with cocaine, the designer drug. And uh, Joe said, I don't know. And he did this experiment. When this baboon's in this cage, if he pushes this, uh, this lever in his hand when that little light comes on, he gets banana-flavored candy in that dish. And a hungry baboon will push that lever about 50 times to get banana-flavored candy. If you set the computer at 100 times, the baboons just wait for dinner. They know they cost 30000 bucks. You're not going to let them starve to death. When that light comes on, he gets whatever drugs in this syringe. And if you put heroin in here and make him addicted to heroin, he'll push the lever about 500 times heroin, about 10 times more than food. And if you make them get push it 700 times, they just go cold turkey and destroy your cage. And then he put cocaine in here. And he found that the baboon would push the lever 5,000 times for cocaine. 
And he said, I think it's addictive. And he was right. This is what drives behavior. It drives behavior. It pushes you to behave a particular way. Opiates, narcotics, benzodiazepines, amphetamines, stimulants like cocaine, all drive behavior. They will make the animal behave in a particular way. Now, I mentioned to you that in that your brain, there's this behavior and reward pathway. And when you're depressed, that's interrupted. But drugs will still provide the reward. So people who are depressed are at much higher risk for addiction. They're at much higher risk for being conditioned to develop chronic pain disorders. Behaviors that simulate chronic pain or the experience of chronic pain. Because you can condition people to increase the firing of their thalamic pain receptors. They'll condition to do that. And it's easier to condition them when they're not getting any other rewards because they're depressed. But drugs will still provide one. Um, people who are extroverted uh, per people who are fo uh, focused on rewards now and feelings are much more conditioned by positive reinforcement than you guys who are mostly introverts. You guys are consequent avoiding your future directed and your function directed. So most of you are in here. Um, my accountant is right there. He's extremely introverted. Tell me everything that could ever go wrong with my taxes for the rest of eternity. And uh, one time we were sitting in the Edmart Deli, and a beautiful woman walked by. And I said, look at that gorgeous woman. Because I noticed gorgeous woman because I have a hypothalamus. It's the part of your brain that makes you go, what were we talking about? Anyway, I said, God, look at that gorgeous woman. He said, yes, yeah, she probably has venereal disease. I see a beautiful woman. He sees potential consequences. He sees chlamydia. I don't think that that 28-year-old woman was going to walk into the deli and fling herself on two 50-some-year-old guys who are eating corned beef sandwiches. But you never know. And he was prepared with a reason to not just go with it, you know? Extroverted people are focused on now, on feelings, and on rewards. And um, so these are CEOs of corporations and rock stars, Madonna, Britney Spears. And uh, they're now-focused, feeling-oriented people, get-it-done people. But they are all in the now. And people who live in the now are extremely sensitive to positive reinforcement. They are sensitive to developing pain disorders. And so you read about these rock stars and, and politicians and other people who get addicted to narcotics, addicted to benzodiazepines. They're much more vulnerable to it because they focus on feelings in now. And nothing makes you feel better now than drugs. And uh, people say, how could Michael Jackson have gotten addicted to propofol? It's easy. Someone gave it to him. It felt good. Actually, felt nothing. But it's very reinforcing. Um, and the people out here, by the way, can be very functional people to start with. So this is where the Kennedys and the Rockefellers come from, and Bernie Madoff, President of the United States, governors of New York. My father said, what was Clinton thinking? My father's one of these guys. I said, he wasn't thinking. He said, that feels pretty good. And then, wham, right? Because these guys don't see it coming. You see it coming. And that's actually your job. Your job as an introvert is to see it coming for these extroverted patients when they come to you. They are extremely vulnerable to abnormal illness behaviors and pain disorders. So the goal of treating these people is not directed at the elimination of pain, per se. It's to increase function, increase quality of life, and decrease iatrogenic morbidity. But the pain almost always diminishes. The pain almost always gets better. It doesn't go away, 
but it's dramatically better. They'll all say, pain's a lot better, Dr. Treisman. But they won't say that at first. As you're tapering their narcotics and putting them through rehab, the pain is worse for a while. And you say, yep, but you're going to feel better later, and you're going to get better, and you're going to be more functional, you're going to have more sex, you're going to have more food, and you're going to have more sleep. You have less, less difficulty. So you want to develop a behaviorally-based plan for rehabilitation that includes a set of rewards and consequences, and use cognitive behavioral therapy to change behavior. You talk about what you want the patient to do, much less about how they feel. And then you've got to treat any psychiatric comorbidities, addictions, depression, and understand the way the, where the place, person came from, where disability might be a really good thing, and you're going to try to get them off disability. You have to tell them what good thing they'll get if they get off of it. So you describe the role of the doctor and the patient. You describe the diagnosis and what you're going to do. Then you have firm limits combined with advocacy for the patient, focus on problems in the patient's life, and away from feelings, on function, on behavior, and away from feelings. And use time-contingent medicines and taper them, and not feeling-contingent medicines, which is what patients want. They want to take narcotics when they feel like it. Um, you want to do graded activation of exercise and social reinforcement, get their spouse and their family in, and then focus on some self-control skills like self-monitoring, uh, and uh, relaxation training and biofeedback and other things, where patients can master a technique that decreases their pain because they like to master a technique that decreases their pain. And these, those things decrease pain. In the absence of opiates, that's what the rest of us use. If you can't take an opiate, you manage your pain. You all cope with pain. It's not like none of you have pain and only those guys have pain. You have pain all the time. You sprain your ankle, you wake up with a sore throat, you have something, and you use these techniques, which you are all good at, because you haven't had opiates as an alternative, and you've learned how to cope with pain. Because we all cope with pain. And a lot of us have chronic pain, especially when you get to be my age, and you've broken everything a couple of times. Confront behavior. When, everybody, when anybody's doing something, you guess I say, things, I say can't, means won't, uh, can't means won't, need means want, and think means feel. So um, on the inpatient service, I always have patients who say, I can't get out of bed today. I say, what if the bed was on fire? Or I say, what if I came in with a fire extinguisher and started to hose you down? Yeah, then I could. Then you don't mean can't, you mean won't. Oh, fine, trick me. My patients say, I've had this conversation or some variant of it a thousand times with patients. You have to get up and go to group. I can't get out of bed. Really? You can't get out of bed? I mean, if the bed was on fire, you'd be that well, then I could get out of bed. Then you don't mean can't. And if you don't go to group, I'm going to discharge you. So in one scenario, security will come, drag you out of bed, and throw you out. In the other scenario, get up and go to group and stay. And if you stay, you get to continue to be in the hospital. And if you leave, you have to go to the shelter because you have no place to live. You know, I think I can go to group, Dr. Treisman. That's so great. I'm so proud of you. That's cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so thoughts affect feelings and behaviors, and your idea is to change the thoughts and the behaviors to change the feelings, not to change the feelings. Um, and patients want you to make them feel a certain way so they can do a certain thing. And I tell them I want them to do a certain thing, and after a while, make them feel a certain way. Treat the psychiatric comorbidities. Always look for a curable source of the problem. Because some of these patients have occult disorders that if you miss them, you're an idiot. I've been an idiot plenty of times, I can tell you. It's very embarrassing when you've gotten the patient rehabilitated and then you find out that, gee, they had a fracture that was missed or they had some other thing that's been there for years. One of my patients was called a, you know, a personality disorder and all kinds of other things. She turned out to have a pretty bad vasculitis that everybody had missed because she was negative on the serology test. But when you actually biopsied her sural nerve, which I did finally, 
flaming vasculitis and did a lot better when we treated that. Analyze reinforces a pain behavior and design a rehabilitative program that emphasizes function, quality of life, and longevity and recognize personality problems and adjust for it and accept serendipity when you can find it. Um, they're going to yell at you because it's expensive to do this with patients. Work the patient up, treat all those things, rehabilitate the patient, and it's a lot less than what we're spending on chronic pain disorders, which is $100 billion a year. Um, and the argument about whether the pain is real or not is fruitless and often embarrassing when the patient dies of the illness they were faking. Um, there's one great series looking at patients who have somatization disorder, uh, conversion disorders, and 50% uh, of them were found to have a real organic basis for their disorder. Embarrassing, since most of those patients, you could have found it if you just looked for it then. Um, but behavioral conditioning get patients better, improve function, and uh, each patient needs a unique formulation, but all patients need a program that emphasizes structure conditioning and advocacy. And here's the biggest problem. Your insurance company only authorized me to take out one. You pick. We need integrated care. You need a person like me in your clinic, and I need people like you in my clinic. Because you need to be able to come over and say, show me how to do this. I need to show you how to do it. And I have to be able to say, come show me how to do this. and just show me how to do it. We have disintegrated care. We've carved out mental illness from general health care. And the reason we've carved it out is because we don't want to take care of mentally ill. You are supposed to see patients in shorter times and have better outcomes. And that immediately eliminates all my patients who take longer times and have poorer outcomes. And they make your statistics look bad. But they are the people who are getting hepatitis C and spreading hepatitis C. They are people getting HIV and spreading HIV. They are the people who are costing us zillions of dollars in disability and living empty lives that we viatrogenically caused. And we need to demand more resources for them, fight to get the things they need, take care of them. So thank you very much. I'm going to show you these questions again. 33-year-old white man arrives in the clinic, blah, 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 blah. You should. I'm hoping that you'll get this right now. Retrain in dermatology. Advise him you can't provide any medications. Offer him a one-month supply. Discuss treatment goals and transition plan. Give him his medications and refer him to the pain clinic. Donna, I get a million dollars. Thank you very much. I hope this was fun for you. Um, I'm around for questions if you want to ask, and I'll be around the rest of the day. And I'm going to go visit Eric Dar's clinic tomorrow, so here all the afternoon. Thanks we have time for just a couple questions. Oh, good. So uh, first one is, could you comment on combining mindfulness-based intervention with cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah. We, I mean, mindfulness is really, is really a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, and we use it fairly regularly. It's uh, the dialectical behavioral therapy and mindfulness and a bunch of other tools are very structured forms of cognitive behavioral therapy that can be learned from little manuals and little guidelines. And because of that, you can teach them to the patient more easily than you can cognitive behavioral therapy. So we use biofeedback and mindfulness and other forms in which you focus on thoughts and on behavior and try to remove the focus from feelings. When you're doing biofeedback, you're focusing on doing something and not on your feelings and not on your pain. And all those things work the same way, including mindfulness. And they're, they're very effective. They're probably more effective than narcotics, but they're way more work than narcotics. Other stuff? So I have one question. Okay. Um, this is going to be a doozy. <laughs> not so much. But I'm just kidding. We, 
I think uh, maybe not as much as uh, narcotics problems. We tend to have major issues with uh, binge crystal meth use. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that in your yeah, so, paradigm? So addicted patients, I mean, it's a slightly different talk when you talk about treating addictions, but it has a lot of the same elements. And uh, patients who are addicted to drugs, patients who are addicted to amphetamine, um, it is the most powerful reinforcer known to man, amphetamine and cocaine. They work the same way in your brain. They both release dopamine. And um, they get a hold of patients in a very intense way. And you have to be able to persuade patients that they have to take a break from it so you can have a conversation with them about strategies not to relapse. But in the context of using, they can't have that conversation. And the problem is, both for opiates and for stimulants, because the withdrawal is not life-threatening, it's very difficult to get the hospital to take these patients as an inpatient. But they actually do better if you can get them in the hospital, even for a couple days, to detoxify them. So if you put a rat in a cage and have them bar press for cocaine, as soon as you turn the machine off, you will very quickly stop bar pressing for cocaine because it washes out fairly quickly. Whereas if you give a rat nicotine, bar press for nicotine, they'll keep doing it for an awfully long time. They won't do it nearly, they won't ever get up to 5,000 or 12,000 for a single jolt, but the persistence will be longer. Cocaine washes out fairly quickly, so you can get people away from cocaine even for a week or two. You can often have a conversation about the way it's destroyed their life, and what kinds of things they want. But you have to get them, you can't let them back in the environment. They're conditioned to use if they get in the environment where it cues them to use. That is, they're conditioned to crave it and conditioned to use it as an automatic behavior. And so you have to keep them out of where they were using, which often means relocating them. And, uh, and those, are, those are strategic steps for these. So we, the, we have a lot of cocaine and amphetamine abuse in, in Baltimore and, in our clinic, but the patients I tend to see are people who've developed psychotic reactions to those things. They're really hard to treat. But even those guys, you get most of them off if you work with them and, and can get them separated from the behavior. Now, I have the, I have the luxury of being able to admit people to the hospital. I, um, I can see that they clearly have a mood disorder underlying their cocaine use and affect sort of like major depression or bipolar disorder. And because uh, I have a special kind of vision that I know that that's a billable diagnosis. And so um, I can admit them for that while I detoxify them for cocaine. Sometimes it turns out I'm wrong, that they don't really have bipolar disorder. But that's very, very, very common. OK. Well, I thank right, Dr. Thank Treisman for a very entertaining discussion. Our next